Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, my guest is Shankar Venkatraman, Chief Evangelist for LinkedIn. What is a Chief Evangelist? Uh, you'll have to listen to the episode as Shankar gets into that and talks about the different roles and responsibilities that he has within LinkedIn, working with some of their largest clients, as well as some of their smaller clients, helping them make the most of the system. Shankar has devoted his career to helping individuals and companies make the most of their careers. And uh, that really comes through in a lot of the work that he does right now. LinkedIn is so important to the business world right now. Yes, it's a tech platform, but it's it's how people connect. It's how sales happen. It's how business gets driven. It's how people find new jobs. It's how people learn new information. I would argue that almost every job in some way touches LinkedIn. And so really excited to have him on here today to to talk about this and, and get into all of the different facets of LinkedIn and, and what it can really do for our organizations. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy the conversation with Shankar Venkatraman. And we are live. Shankar, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Brian. Very excited. Shankar, you are a very smart guy, which I think would be an understatement. Uh, You have a, a PhD in chemical engineering, and you are working for a social media platform doing evangelist work. What is an evangelist, and how did you get to be at LinkedIn doing the work that you're doing? Thanks, O'Brien. First of all, thanks for having me here. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, when you mentioned my PhD, I'll tell people only half-jokingly, uh, I call it under the indiscretions of my youth, where as a kid, I was like, okay, I think I want to get as far as possible in my uh, educational career. And so I went all the way, did um, my PhD in chemical engineering. And then I realized when I was working as a consultant for four years after that, that I had more fun working with the people and understanding the needs of the people and uh, their career aspirations more so than working with, let's say, chemical engineering and biochemical engineering technologies. So I went back to business school to kind of pivot uh, my career transformation and then moved to the West Coast to do technology work and then I worked at three different startups. And then uh, as I was working through the last of uh, the technology companies, I realized again that my ambition and my aspiration really was with making people succeed. So if you look at everyday life or a lifespan of any human, a good 70% of the waking hours is spent on work-related stuff. But there's really no, at that time, this was in 2011, there was really no platform or no real ability for you to vocalize what your aspirations are. And so 
And LinkedIn came about, right? LinkedIn that only existed for eight years by then, but as a platform, it slowly started evolving into an opportunity for you to start expressing what your career aspirations are. And as I was looking to start my own company, LinkedIn reached out to me through their one of their uh, proverbial in-mails, asking me if I'd be actually interested in working for them. And I was like, no, I'm going to start this company about people and their careers and aspirations and really help them as a career coach. And I said, oh, you can do that as part of our platform. And I didn't even know LinkedIn had a whole huge line of business at that time, a $100 million line of business, specifically focused on helping job seekers find jobs with recruiters. So that kind of was my career transition into a tech platform focused on uh, doing the best we can for helping people, uh, helping seekers achieve their best in terms of their career aspirations. Sorry, a long-winded answer to your question of how does a PhD in chemical engineer become a tech evangelist? <laughs> no, that was that was wonderful. Thank you. So that explains how you got to LinkedIn. And, and I like that. I, I like the career coaching element. I, I it resonates with me, the element of helping people really do the work and be proactive about what they want. I, I love that. But how does that translate to being an evangelist? What, what does that mean? No, it's a, it's a great point. This is completely as in a LinkedIn way, something that we just uh, take a huge risk on. So one of the cultural tenets of LinkedIn is take intelligent risks and look to transform yourself, the company, and the world. So those are two of our uh, core uh, cultural values and tenets. So I basically kind of poached onto the two of them and I said, I'm happy doing a product marketer for a single product. But what I really want to do is reach out to our, at that time, it was about 450 million members and our 115,000-ish customers on what exactly they can do better with our products, both as a seeker on the member side and as a hire or a job poster on the recruiter side? And how do you evangelize the value of a platform in all aspects, whether it's on the free side, whether it's on the paid side, et cetera? So that kind of something that I proposed to my team, and they were like, okay, go ahead. So my manager was supportive and said, okay, go ahead. And that kind of what where it became the concept of an evangelist. So what I do now is really be the voice of LinkedIn to the world, and the voice of the world, whether through members, our customers, our influencers, our analysts, back into our LinkedIn Talent Solutions organization. So you're the first evangelist. That's correct. At that time, yes. And now we have a team of about eight people and looking to grow as we look at different regions and different audiences and different segments. What was it that you were trying to address with that? Was there a specific gap? So... What happened at the time when LinkedIn came into what I would say was a pre-teen years was people and members especially, when they got into the platform, it was very confusing to be what exactly they should be doing. As a seeker, it was pretty obvious. You go look for a job, search for a job, etc. But if you already had a job, you were not quite clear what your specific tasks were. Or if you were a poster, you knew what to do. But if you were not actively hiring, you didn't know what you were going to do on the platform. So what LinkedIn, what my role was to basically say, the goal of LinkedIn is two prongs. One is make you better at what you already do. And the second piece is if you are looking for a job or if you're looking for a candidate, how do you make you better is what you actually are. And so that's kind of where it came about. So how should business leaders then be thinking about LinkedIn? Or I guess how should anybody be thinking about LinkedIn? 
So the way to think about LinkedIn is we are first and foremost a member-centric platform. So I only half-kiddingly tell my customers that I value as a customer, but I adore you as a member. Because without a member, right now we are a little over 690 million members, the platform ceases to exist. So as a member, the goal and a primary goal is really more towards the free members, not even for the premium or the paying members, is to extract and give you as much value whether you're looking to connect, whether you're looking to find a job, whether you're looking to inform yourself, whether you're looking to learn, whether you're looking to find and connect yourself with a company or find a seller, find a buyer. That's kind of the core premise of what we want to do for LinkedIn. And then once we feed these basic needs to a free member, we then kind of elevate and escalate as part of the pyramid to do better for the premium member and then more for the customers whether the customer is looking to hire, looking to market, looking to sell, or looking to educate or learn in a specific aspect of a product. And so that's kind of the four core businesses that LinkedIn parlays into, a talent solution, a sales solution, some marketing solutions, and learning solutions. So at the core, we basically want to connect members. And the, uh, the second piece is the ability for them to find whether it's to hire, market, sell, or learn. Which that makes sense to me because the people who are going to pay for those memberships, especially the salespeople, the, the recruiters, those types of organizations, the only value to them is that everybody else is showing up to the community. And so if you're, if you're catering to them, you're missing the point, right? So you have to be catering to the every member and making it really rich and valuable experience for them so that they come back. And then that ultimately sort of secondarily serves your actual paying customers. You're the nail on the head, Brian. The real core is what I call, that's the goose that plays the golden egg, which is a free member coming and interacting, trying to understand what's going on, in this case, COVID-19, or the Black Lives Matter movement, or what can they do better in terms of bringing back the employees, but learning something that's happening potentially in Asia Pac or Singapore. How are the companies there responding to COVID-19 changes and bringing employees back into the system. The whole idea is really democratize knowledge at a global level in a uniform platform where the only goal is to really help every member who comes to the platform be better at what they do, regardless of what they do as a professional. What are the biggest misconceptions that you see about people showing up to the platform? And I guess it'd be good to hear that there's two ways to think about it, right? Because you have your individual members and then you have the paying members. What's the biggest misconception for the individual member? Okay, that's that's an interesting question because in some ways, the first thing uh, that I realized when I said in 2011, I didn't know LinkedIn made so much more money on uh, on the recruiting platform, et cetera, is still a a misconception today with certain members, which is, Let's take the healthcare industry, which is a huge need in in terms of the pandemic. There's a perception among some members, especially nurses, medical staff, that I don't think there are enough medical or recruiters in the hospital hospital and the pharmaceutical industry on the LinkedIn platform. That's a misconception. So regardless of who you are and what your profession is, you can guarantee because of the size of our organization, which is like, we, if you look at, look at us as a country, we'll probably be the third largest country in the world as a LinkedIn membership. And so there is definitely the people who are looking to hire are on the platform. The second misconception, first misconception, so to the, summarize that is 
oh, there is nobody looking to hire for my skill sets, which is untrue. So definitely a misconception. The second misconception is, is there more for me to get away, uh, get, get from the platform as much as there is for me to give back to the platform? So in some ways, people have kind of reticence about, am I really going to be contributing as much when I talk to somebody about, let's say, work, workplace transformation? I was talking to a few people who have been displaced from uh, companies uh, as part of the COVID pandemic who used to be workplace experts. And I was telling them, this is the time and people are looking for your expertise on the platform. So write a blog post, write an exposition about how you can be better in this uh, marketplace when people are looking for advice from experts like you on how do you manage six-foot distance when you're placing new cubicles? Or how do you manage people in measuring their temperatures or other kind of medical measurements before you bring them back into the offices, etc.? So that's a misconception where people assume that I'm not in a field where people really care for my expertise. That's not true. There are lots of people who are looking for expertise, maybe not in your backyard, maybe not in the area that you already know where other people have equal expertise. But somewhere along the other side of the globe, people are always looking for experts and expertise in terms of what your best practices are. So don't ever short sell yourself in terms of what you can offer. That's a second misconception, which is what I'm going to say may not be as valuable for others. Untrue. People are always looking to hear and learn some tidbit from what your knowledge is. The third piece is, will I actually get any responses on the platform? So People are coming into the platform. This is one of the highest engagement we've seen on the platform in historical levels, especially post-pandemic, because people, again, are looking to other experts on the platform to learn from. So the third misconception of, oh, well, I'll never hear from anyone, whether it's a call or an email to a recruiter or a message to somebody I didn't know on the platform, I just want to share my expertise, you will absolutely do, because it's one of the highest engaged platforms, uh, professional platforms on the planet. Interesting. Yeah. It just makes me think, makes me think a lot of different things, but it's, it's something that you probably, I mean, like everything else you get in what you get out, what you put in. Right. And so there's definitely a learning curve that I'm seeing happening and I'm feeling it happening too, just with myself, where there's an opportunity now to put yourself out there in a way that's much more public than it ever was before, which is great in many respects because it gives you the opportunity to market yourself in a way that you wouldn't have normally done before. Historically, it would be, oh, I work for company X and therefore my knowledge is my company's knowledge and therefore it goes through the company to get out into the world. But now, even if you work for that company, you can still be putting your knowledge out into the world. And I think there's still, there's like a fear around doing that and there's, there's just a comfort that people have to get as they flex that muscle over and over again. At least that's the way it seems to me. That's, that's a great uh, astute observation, Brian. So our founder, Reed Hoffman, wrote a book called Startup of You. And the idea and the conceptual, the kind of crux of, the meat, uh, of that concept is everybody is basically an entrepreneur. And what they are really doing is kind of like, quote unquote, a tour of duty when they're working for a company. In this day and age, when unlike our grandparents and our parents, where they would join a company like a General Electric or a Siemens or a Honeywell and basically wait for the golden handshake 35, 40 years later and then retire, that concept doesn't exist anymore. On average today, a person joining the workforce, it's expected they will change their job in their career 17 times. 
Stop. 17 so, times. 17 times. That is a lot of times. Yes. <laughs> That's so every two and a half, three years, they expect to change job. Either because you have to or you're doing a career switch, or the company feels that they have to look at a different direction for the skill set that they're looking for. So what this does is basically highlights that startup of you. Just have that entrepreneurial spark where you are the owner of your intellectual property as long as it's not intertwined with your company's IP. In the sense that unless you're working on, let's say, just to give again the COVID example, you're working on the next vaccine for COVID, where obviously it's tied to a pharmaceutical company's intellectual property. The concept of what you are poor at, whether it's your communication skills, whether it's your ability to project manage, whether it's your ability to make fantastic presentations, those are your core skills of who you are as a human, who you are as a professional. That is easily transferable from one role to another. That is something that you can basically evangelize or espouse when you get on the platform. Yeah, that's a good correction because... Well, I don't want anybody breaking any laws listening to this and being like, oh, well, this is great. I can take all this private intellectual property and I help create it. So it's mine. So I'm going to dump it on LinkedIn. That's not what we're saying. But it is, to your point, a great opportunity to go out and show the skills that you do have. Flip that around on its head. What can't LinkedIn do for you? What are the limitations? And when you're thinking about engaging with other people, when you're thinking about your own career, like what should people be looking to LinkedIn for? And what are the things maybe that LinkedIn isn't there to address? Do you, do you find people looking for looking to LinkedIn for something that it's not meant to deliver? There are certain cases. <laughs> uh, let, me, let me put it in two ways. One is a quasi, I would say, humorous, and another one is much more on the serious side. In the humorous side, I remember eight, seven, eight years ago, I've been, by the way, in LinkedIn for a little over eight and a half years. Seven, eight years ago, I would get asked, quite a few times, uh, either half-jokingly or full-jokingly, saying, why doesn't LinkedIn become a matchmaking platform? <laughs> when uh, eHarmony basically would um, look at the market and go, oh, this is a huge market that LinkedIn is playing in, which is basically a matchmaking market. We are matchmaking job seekers with recruiters. And once in 18 months or so, eHarmony would say, oh, we're going to enter the uh, job seeker market to kind of upend what LinkedIn does, et cetera. And so I would hear from uh, the singles as well as some clients saying, hey, when are you guys looking to enter into the, the singles market or trying to do what eHarmony does? I'm like, that's not our focus, our single-minded focus is... That's like, hey, you're a type A-driven individual and this is a type A-driven individual or like, you've been at the same company for 20 years. You must be conservative. We're going to match you with this other conservative person over here. Yeah. So like, no, we're not going to do that. So... LinkedIn, to this day, we have held on to that. Like, we're not going to be beyond the core of what we do, which is really uh, a hiring marketplace for professionals. We're slightly expanding it to areas, uh, the beyond professional space we'll talk about, but it's still about job seeker or and, uh, kind of uh, entwined within the whole seeking and the uh, job workplace environment. So that's one. So that's a misconception. So please don't use LinkedIn for finding your next significant other. <laughs> yeah, it's not allowed in the workplace. It's not allowed on LinkedIn. <laughs> That's one. The second misconception, or, or not misconception, sorry. A uh, second thing that LinkedIn is not designed to do, is not designed for, is it's not a platform, to your point earlier, Brian, where you get what you, you get back what you put in. 
LinkedIn is really along those directions. It expects you to contribute. So don't, don't just consume content, but basically contribute content. So when people come to LinkedIn platform and expect that they would just automatically get triggered into various things, etc., that's not LinkedIn as well. We're not going to do that. And like, there's as much of a two-way interaction between you and the platform, you and the peers, and you and the professionals on the platform. So focus more on that. And that's something that uh, there is a, a clear gap around where LinkedIn is not intended for it. We're not going to basically spoon-feed certain things besides, of course, a job or a job recommendation or a people recommendation or a company recommendation, etc., on other aspects of it. So that's not something that LinkedIn would do. Uh, and then there is also a perception that LinkedIn would automatically match anything and LinkedIn would basically have these elements of where we tie in uh, everything that you do outside of the platform into the platform. We don't do that. What the interactions that happen in the platform, the recommendations are all based on your interaction, your collaboration, and your affinity to the platform. So uh, that's something, the second thing that you should be aware of that LinkedIn cannot do. I'll add a third one, uh, if you'll allow me to, which is, and this is especially true for salespeople or people who are using it to network, is that because there's the ability to connect with people that you don't have to follow the same social protocol that you would follow if you were in person and that you can just send somebody you've never met a note, you know, an invite with no context and expect that suddenly you can ask something of that person that like you're now friends and now they like owe you a meeting or, or something like that. And I, I see that a lot where people are just, they're not giving the relationships the attention that they would give them in the real world. And, and I think LinkedIn is a fabulous tool and I use it every day for the work that I do and, and to stay connected with the network that I've built. But I just, I see people sort of skimping on that. And I, and I think about it, the way that I think about LinkedIn is, it is a great way to create and maintain real world relationships through you know the efficiency of a virtual setting. Plus one, it's spot on. And I think social relationship is especially valuable because the social selling concepts based on the products we sell as part of our LinkedIn sales solutions is really predicated on that relationship. So I think O'Brien hit the nail on the head, which is really about what you do on LinkedIn platform is not that far off as what you would do in real life. So like the concepts, the uh, the genuine uh, nature of the relationship, the camaraderie and the cordial nature of approaching somebody, especially somebody you don't know, have the context and uh ability to have the humility to reach out to somebody, especially when it's a cold relationship, or that you would do in real life. And one thing that we have seen some of the other um, publications write about, in fact, that of all the platforms that exist, LinkedIn is the one that's closest to what your professional, uh, what you would like to be seen in the real world. And LinkedIn is what is the closest to that on a social world perspective. And we are proud of that. We want to keep that. And for that to happen, have the genuine, the politeness, the basic sense of decency that you would have in real life on the platform and could not agree more with your point, especially when it comes to selling. Because I buy from a human, not from a company. So, yeah. so how do you advise 
corporations, we've talked a lot about the individuals, but how do you advise corporations to think about that real world versus virtual setting and to make the most of the platform as they're out trying to connect with others and spread their message? The way an organization or a company, whether whether it's a a company that buys and sells uh, products or services, whether it's an institution of higher learning, where their core concept is basically attract students and educate students, or a nonprofit organization, or not like a a healthcare um, uh, institution, or a hospital, or a Black Lives Matter movement uh, organization, etc. The whole concept and the premise of LinkedIn focuses on the four key things, which is hiring the best people. We have the talent. Now, how do you basically hire the best people? How do you convince them on what exactly are your core products and solutions and services that you offer? That's the marketing solutions piece of it. How do you help them sell what you already have? That's a mark, whether it's a products or services. And how do you constantly upskill and reskill the talent you already have? That's our learning solution. Upskill and reskill? Yes. And that's the, uh, our LinkedIn learning solution, which is our uh, newest of our uh, line of business. We acquired a company called lynda.com about three years ago. And that's become such a cool concept today, especially in this world, in the new world of remote learning. So if you look at any company, there are four key things that happen, which is you hire the people, you retain the people by educating them, upskilling them, reskilling them. You have a marketing organization whose core focus is to basically put your brand out there and you can use LinkedIn LinkedIn marketing solutions to help you evangelize and amplify that message. And you have a product to sell or a services to sell. And that's our LinkedIn sales solution that helps you to find the connections on the LinkedIn platform for enabling this this concept of social selling. So the four things for any institution to function is really about the people, how well and how educated they are on your products and services, how can they market and sell the products and services, and that basically enables LinkedIn to be this universal platform. For that to happen for an organization, they need to be fully committed or the extent possible, as committed as possible, to be on the platform, whether they are having their CEO write their blogs about how it is as a great company to work, or have the CMO talk about what is their brand personify? What does the brand mean? Or have this chief sales officer talk about what kind of talent they hire and what does it mean to be a successful salesperson at their organization? Or their learning uh, leader, learning and development leader talk about how they're upskilling their talent that they already have, how they nurture the talent that they already have. That basically brings the core components of LinkedIn to life for any institution that participates and partners with LinkedIn. Do you have any examples of like who, who's doing that really well and, and how they're engaged? Absolutely. So Unilever is a great example. We all know Unilever from the toothpaste we use every day to all kind of health and hygiene products to uh, some of the off-the-counter off products. And they use it across the spectrum. Whether it's the CEO writing blog about how important Black Lives Matter movement is it for them, how important diversity is for the organization to the chief marketing officer bragging about how they are still one of the top sought-after brands in the world, the power of the brand that they've built over, over hundreds of years, 
or the hiring manager, uh, hiring leader, the chief human resource organization leader, talking about the kind of talent they bring in, how they have nurtured this across the labs in the world, etc. So Unilever is a good example on the platform. Then you can look at examples like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation from the nonprofit world on what kind of talent they have. And it may be surprised to know they have thousands of employees all over the world in terms of everything that they do to talk about what is the latest uh, foray into uh, vaccinations in sub-Saharan Africa to what is their, what is Bill Gates' commitment towards ensuring there's no future pandemic and how is he, him and Melinda uh, going to commit to this initiative as part of their giving back initiatives. Uh, what kind of stories they can tell from the uh, nonprofit world that the for-profit organizations can learn from. So all of these are like two good examples on the spectrum of a, a, a hardcore for-profit company like Unilever, and of course Bill and Melinda from Gates Foundation, and numerous institutions on the platform. So we have hundreds and thousands and millions of companies on the LinkedIn platform who have a presence and use this presence to amplify the messages of what it is like to be at their company. Let's talk about hiring for a second, because you mentioned the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation hiring people all over the world. And you said earlier, you know, it's all about getting the right people in the door, which I would agree with and a number of my past guests would agree with. How should people be engaging with LinkedIn to find the right people because online you're looking at resumes or you're looking at a LinkedIn profile and you know, you, you can only get so much. How do you see companies making the most of that to make sure that they're really getting the people that are fitting with them? Interestingly, our very first uh, use case for LinkedIn uh, happened to be recruiters. So three years into it, 2006, we started seeing the biggest engagement come from recruiters. Because historically, uh, as many of the recruiters of your show might know, they would have this Rolodex or a black book or uh, uh, literally an Excel spreadsheet of people who know somebody who knows somebody. And then they would go, I'm looking for a VP of marketing. Do you know someone? Or kind of go with this whole network of connections. It was always about who you know. So in 2006, when we started kind of uh, hitting the hockey stick of uh, everybody, uh, not everybody, everybody on the platform started to invite their friends and family on to join them on the professional network, we basically started exploding in terms of the connections. So this became almost a digital network connection. And one of the biggest users of that started to be recruiters. So in 2008 is when we launched our first product for recruiters called the LinkedIn Recruiter. And today it's still our number one product. Uh, on the LinkedIn platform. And today it is orders of magnitude smarter thanks to AI and machine learning within the product and number of data points we have. We have over 50 different filters within the product and uh, various kind of ways in which you can search for a specific, literally what uh, uh, the recruiters would call the purple squirrel or needle in the haystack kind of a talent on the platform. Purple squirrel. I've not heard that one before. I haven't, I haven't heard it before Before I joined LinkedIn 80 years ago. It's like that's a, a classic way for a recruiter to define this hard-to-find talent. So they would go this purple squirrel. Or I would think of it as finding somebody with a fiber optic degree with eight years of Google experience, uh, but had programmed in Go uh, and can juggle with uh, eyes blindfolded. 
kind of a thing. It was like really hard to find kind of talent just called the purple squirrel in the in their parlance. So today that has become almost like again democratized in terms of who has access to the staff. So no longer is a single person who has this uh, blue book. Whereas what has changed now is it's not about who has access because that is available to everyone. It's like how do you basically bring in your knowledge of the market, your knowledge of what your company does, the culture fit, and understanding, having the EQ to understand the person you're interviewing on the other side. Is this person, he or she, going to be a fit for your hiring manager? Are they going to be a fit or a culture add to your organization? Do they understand what it takes to work in your fast moving or slow moving company? That basically becomes the more the added value that a recruiter has. The second value that a recruiter can bring is understand the nuances of the job, as in, can you have and build uh, ability to convince this talent? Let's say you're trying to hire somebody in Austin, Texas, but this person is in Atlanta. How do you convince he or she and their spouses or significant other to move to Austin, Texas from uh, Atlanta? Uh, so your negotiation skills, your persuasion skills, your ability to convince, to move the talent, that takes much more of a priority than can I just find uh, another O'Brien who was such an awesome salesperson in the previous role I placed in that. And yeah. so that basically becomes a core. Well, and and that aligns with a lot of the things that that I think about in the comment I made earlier, where it's it's not about LinkedIn doing all the work for you. It's about LinkedIn giving you better insights, getting you to better people, teeing up better opportunities for you. But you still need to be a master at whatever your skill set is. And so if you're a recruiter, you still need to be a master recruiter and master all of the interpersonal skills and dynamics, negotiations and things, storytelling that you would need to without the tool. It's just the tool makes it that much better, makes you, allows you to be that much more successful. It's spot on. I think that's that's exactly the crux of what you hit the nail nail on the head, uh, Brian. The core of what was considered once historically mundane work has been automated. The mundane work could be passing resumes, understanding some core elements of somebody's skill sets, looking through at the required skills versus uh, recommended skills, etc. Those are automated. Now LinkedIn uh, AI machine learning does the work for you. Now you're basically basically move to the top right hand corner, which is really uh, highlighting your social and EQ and your skills that would require for you to be more human. So the skills that used to be could have been done by a machine is already done. Now skills that cannot be done by a machine, which is how do you understand the person you're trying to work with? The spouse is also a working spouse. And she also needs a job in Austin when you're trying to move this rock star salesperson from Atlanta to Austin. So that kind of piece, no machine can do that. And that's where your human uh, skills really stand out. Storytelling, to your point, all of those. So you're arguing then, if I'm going to put some words in your mouth, you're arguing then that the social platform is actually making the human user more human. That's been a very uh, interesting debate of late, which is like, do social platforms actually make you lazier or threaten your jobs or are you going to augment your jobs? And I've been a big proponent uh, of this and I've been chatting with some of the foremost thought leaders in uh, MIT as part of their 
she's saying labs, uh, the AI labs, is really the fact that what's going to happen is jobs of, jobs of today are going to be lost in the core sense. But what they're really going to be happening is more transformed. So no longer are you going to deploy a $15 per hour employee to parse resumes. That's going to happen beyond machines. What, but what you're going to do is you're going to train this $15 per hour employee to be smarter about understanding the needs of the seeker. Uh, how do you basically upskill the talent that you have to understand the needs of a hiring manager? and make those connections between what a hiring manager is looking for and what the job seeker can offer. Those things are not necessarily easily transferable to a machine-based spitting out of results. And that's what's going to happen over the next uh, literally 20, 30 years, which is moving from uh, things that are mundane that are going to be automated, but you know, net, net lose jobs in the core sense. It's just the transfer, there's going to be a transformation of the jobs as well. So the way you look at it is the telephone operators of the, of the yonder years. It's not like uh, we don't have more jobs today than we did uh, in the 80s, the 70s. It's that their jobs have changed and they're not telephone operators anymore. And they're not basically doing switching of uh, telephone because that's automated. But they've now become more in different ways. They probably moved and moved on to different aspects of the jobs. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like those future jobs are going to be, I mean, guess thinking about it under the framework that you're saying, they're either going to be using technology, right? So so helping administer and manage the technology or the very human side of connecting and doing the things that technology can't do. Spot on. That's exactly uh, what we're saying. And that's one of our biggest investments into the learning platform that we talk about, the LinkedIn Learning. Exactly that, which is you're either, either based on your core skill sets, moving towards the hard skills, which is the technology, where you're then now coding, you're writing the code, you're crafting the nuanced elements of what you want AI and machine learning to do. STEM, right? The, the big push for STEM learning. Exactly. Or you're moving to the other side of the soft skills, people with Excellent, excellent auditory skills, excellent presentation skills, ability to persuade, ability to sell, ability to convince somebody to move from Atlanta to Austin, for example. That basically becomes the core piece. So what we are seeing, and this is based on our data, is the skills that you learn in universities generally obviate at a pace of about every four and a half years. They they what every four and a half years? They become obsolete. Oh, every four and a half years. So uh, this obsolescence rate is going to rapidly increase. So the idea is the only core, only successful metric of the future successful human. And if you want to measure success as somebody who's uh, has a job successfully, is really predicated on how quick of a learner are you, uh, how much action you have for learning. But learning is going to be the only constant thing because every four and a half years, think of it as if your core technology is changing. Uh, so if you are a COBOL engineer today, there's a high probability you're, probably, uh, you're not going to find a job. There are not that many jobs where people are programming in COBOL. But if you learn the ability of COBOL, but I'm just a programmer 
and have continuously evolved from Cobol to Pascal to Fortran to Go to now to Java, JavaScript, C, C++, that evolutionary learning of the languages, then that basically keeps you as engaged and as employed. So it's really the only constant that's going to be going forward is learning. Interesting. And, and I was talking on another episode as well, another interview with a gentleman, we were talking about skill stacking too, and about how, I like your point about evolving, but then also going out and that curiosity to learn several seemingly unrelated skills, and then seeing where the crossover happens when you lay those over the top of each other. Uh, absolutely. I think that's a great, uh, I want to listen to that now. I'm curious now. It's exactly right. I think the curiosity factor and the ability or the passion to learn is what's going to sustain uh, as just humans and uh, in the core sense of being employable in the future. Yeah. I mean, a, a great example of that is just from my own life is in college, I was really interested in film and media. And so I was a communications major and actually did uh, wrote, directed, edited a couple short films that nobody will ever see, but I did it and they were fun. And then got into sales mm -hmm. as a professional career, built that. And, but then I've always just been really fascinated in behavior and human psychology. And so I had a friend who casually mentioned that he knew a behavioral psychologist professor and I stalked him until he gave me her number and then stalked her until she had a meeting with me. And through that met a couple more people fast forward pandemic hits, I decided to launch this podcast. I have the editing skills from college, from the production career. I have the ability to talk to people and have a conversation because I have a sales career and that's what I do every day. I have a network of interesting people and I wound up having a professor of behavior science, Lauren Nordgren on the podcast as one of the last episodes that I did. So, you know, like that, it just all comes together. You would never think that those things would line up. Maybe two of them would, but to be able to bring them together and use them in the way that I have wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to do it without stacking those on top of each other. And so it is, I'm always a big, you talk about evangelizing stuff. I, uh, I have a couple soapbox things, but one of mine is, you know, go out and pursue the things that you find interesting and just be incredibly curious about the world. And then stuff will, will line up for you in ways that you just would never have planned. Uh, it's spot on. This reminds me of uh, Steve Jobs. Uh, the only commencement speech he gave was at uh, Stanford in yeah. 2006. That's a fantastic talked, video. It's a fantastic video. I would recommend uh, anybody listening to the podcast to go search on YouTube. It's just 19 minutes. Where he talks about basically you can connect the dots only looking back. So if you look at him, he did a course in calligraphy, which at that time he thought we just a waste of time at Reed College. The calligraphy is basically what defined the Steve Jobs shaped Steve Jobs' mind about the beauty of products that we built. And now he says, now looking back from 2006 to when he went to college, 22 years before that, he was able to connect the dots. And to your point, the way you're doing a branch, like you're connecting dots all the way to your college and like what you did. And I think that's the core thing, which is, and obviously, as you know, from the you know, stay hungry, stay foolish, which is what his basic takeaway from that 20-minute speech was. And that's exactly, you're just paraphrasing that and saying curiosity, which is basically being hungry and be foolish to your point is pursue your passion, which is what he did. And 
he obviously he talks about cases times when he literally ate food at one of these ashrams for free because he had no money and said, stay hungry, stay foolish, literally and figuratively. Yeah. That's if anyone has not seen that, that's a great video. And I'll link that in the show notes as well if you want to watch that, because it is inspiring. So want to pivot a little bit, knowing that we only have a few minutes left, and just talk about LinkedIn as a company, because LinkedIn gets a lot of press for its culture and the, the business structure and, and that kind of a thing, being a leading tech company. How do you think? about the workforce and and what makes LinkedIn's workforce or, or work environment different or unique? So when I joined LinkedIn, we just uh, shy of 2,000 employees. And at that time, we were literally three years into the kind of the core business. Like I said, 2008 is when we launched our first uh, real enterprise product, the LinkedIn Recruiter. And 2009, Jeff Wiener, our CEO at the time, basically enshrined our core culture and values. And looking back 11 years, out of the 11 culture and value tenets we have at LinkedIn, we haven't changed it once. There's only one cultural tenet that's changed. It used to be called demand excellence. We have now changed that to inspire excellence. Other than that, none of our core culture values, whether it's basically uh, relationships matter act like an owner. We talked about uh, inspiring excellence, be humble, humor. All of those are core pieces that have changed. And because it was easy and we would start every sales kickoff, every marketing kickoff by recognizing 11 people across the company for each of these cultural tenets and value. And every bi-weekly, we would have a CEO meeting. And to this day, we still do under Ryan Roslansky, our new CEO every two weeks, and we start off by looking at first is team and talent. Team and talent is a core of who you are. Then we talk about the various other aspects of how are we doing operationally, how are we doing the different lines of business, what are, we, what are our customers saying, what are our members saying, etc. So that kind of reinforces every two weeks what our mission is, what our vision is, and what is important for us, which is team and talent. So when that basically gets reinforced every two weeks, it's hard for anybody, whether you're a hiring manager like me, whether an employee, whether you're a senior director or a senior VP, you never basically start straying from, is this valuable to our member? Is this core of who our customers think we are? And in my eight years, I've, I probably on average talk to about two customers a day on average. So some days I talk to 20 customers, some days I talk to one. and in those conversations, it's not rare to hear, maybe I hear once a quarter or so where the customers would want us to do that benefits them disproportionately as something that benefits a member. But when you have your CEO and the heads reinforce every two weeks, members first is the first cultural tenant. You know what to basically give up. You basically tell your customer, I love you as a customer, but this is not a member-first approach, and we would not do this. Do you have examples of what something like that might be? Absolutely. So many years ago, one of the largest customers, basically, they came from a good place, and they were really good with the AI and machine learning technology. And at that time, 
we were just getting our AI and machine learning all squared away in terms of how do we get our smarts. And they had lots of technology tools and data points. And they, they felt that they had a better mousetrap to be able to find talent that was more uh, relevant to their company based on the culture and value of their company than what LinkedIn would recommend through our LinkedIn recruiter product. So they literally said, we will give you basically come up with a number. Uh, lots, on a, lots of money. Lots of money. And uh, if you can give us uh, your uh, algorithm on how you recommend. So we can tweak the algorithm that suits our recommendation because you clearly don't understand what my company needs. And any, anybody would have said, or anybody as an any startup, because I worked at startups before, I was, uh, as a startup company, you are like really hungry for that big kahuna to basically open and tell your director, board of directors, how, how you basically looked at the big, big fish. And we were steadfast. We basically said, no, that's not how we operate because this violates a core ethos. And even at that time, I was an individual contributor, obviously, of running a LinkedIn recruiter product, but I was still an individual, individual contributor. I could tell this uh, VP of product from this customer company, VP, there was VP of product, VP of talent, VP of sales, they were all there. I could tell them, say, no, I don't even have to go back to my company to get my uh, approval from my, my head of sales. We would not, it's not something we do. This isn't going to happen. Yeah. This is not going to happen. And, and that was easy for me to tell them because I know I can go back to my leadership and I go, that's what you are basically ingrained in me over the many weeks and the many months I've been here. That this is not something we do. Our members first is our core ethos. So that is a, a good example of how it is easy. Now, when I meet some of the new people who come into the company, I give a lot of speeches to interns who come in and some of the people I mentor are new to the company. It's easy for me to tell them the story. And then this becomes kind of the saga that they can repeat as a story of uh, why LinkedIn would not deviate from the core. They can internalize the stories and then live out those values. So what in, in your mind, this is a question I ask everybody. I'd be curious for your answer. And I don't know as the evangelist, whether you can speak to LinkedIn's view on this, but what is the purpose of business? <laughs> I'm laughing because uh, I don't know if you know, uh, Tim Liebrecht, he runs a, a program uh, called the House of Beautiful Business. And, the House uh, of Beautiful Business? Yeah. Yeah, I looked that up. Check it, check it out. And uh, it's, it's interesting. It's really about uh, the purpose of a business in a capitalistic capitalist society has continued to evolve uh, over decades, over ever since the Industrial Revolution and the latest revolution. And the world we sit today I think the, work, the purpose of a business that com has completely morphed and continues to morph, morph right in front of our eyes. Uh, if you had asked even 20, 10 years ago, if Jamie Diamond from uh, JP Morgan Chase would basically say, employees are my number one asset, probably not going to happen. That, of course, I mean, in the heels of the 2009 financial uh, disaster, but that's not something that the capitalist CEOs were ingrained. But if you kind of uh, fast forward nine years, and just last year, him and 250 top CEOs as part of the business roundtable basically said employee, employees are our number one uh, entity. It's not shareholders. It's not profit. It's the success of employees. So that 
basically means we are at a pivotal point where the element of human dignity, human success, and the purpose of humanity is now taking a central point as a focus of any business, as opposed to profit or the dollar being the God Almighty. And I think that has changed even more, or accelerated even more in the world we live today as part of the pandemic and almost the uh, world of um, the bipolar world we live in. And that's going to be accelerated even more when people realize it's uh, we live for each other. And I think the businesses are going to take this on uh, even more as a big mandate as we move forward. So net net in my, in my mind, the purpose of business is to serve humanity. That's it. Just, <laughs> just to serve humanity. Oh, I, I love that. And I had on a, a gentleman who worked uh, for a B corporation uh-huh. and the, he talked a lot about purpose in business and serving a higher purpose. But one of the things he said is without profit, there's no purpose. So, uh-huh. so you do have to balance those two out, right? You have to, you have to create a profitable business, but then aim it at serving some purposeful cause. I, I, absolutely. And I think that's, that's a good way to look at it as well. And it's always a proverbial question of when you know who you're serving, if, you're, if your role is to basically serve humanity or serve, in our case, serve our members or serve our customers, uh, be better at what they already do. Profit follows, uh, money follows, and people want to basically be associated with that. So last question, and then I know you got to go, where's LinkedIn headed? Let me give you an example. Uh, let me give you the answer to the context in terms of where we are looking at as an organization. So as you know, uh, we were acquired by Microsoft four years ago, and that's worked out, knock and wood, one of the best acquisitions, tech acquisitions in the world, um, especially considering the kind of money that Microsoft paid for the acquisition. Um, the core element of the acquisition the reason it has become successful is because of the aligned mission of where Microsoft is going and where LinkedIn is going. The core objective of Microsoft is basically enable the professionals to be better at what they already do. The core vision of LinkedIn is connect the world's uh, professionals to be more productive and successful. And that mer- merger of the two enables us to reach the billions who use Microsoft products today powered by LinkedIn's core elements of the lines of business. When we look at the future, I think our goal is to basically accelerate every professional success, whether they're looking to learn and get better at what they do, whether they're looking to sell their products and services, whether they're looking to basically hire the right talent. So the vision for us going forward is basically improve the productivity of every professionals, and soon they get into the areas of what we call the beyond professionals, to have a platform, have a say, and have the ability to basically connect and be better at what they do. And that's basically our long-term vision uh, powered by Microsoft. Fantastic. Shankar, thank you very much for making the time today. I really appreciate all the insight. You know, this is a, a podcast about the people dynamics at play in a workforce, but in the world we live in, you can't talk about people without talking about 
social connection and, and now social media. And so LinkedIn's such a prominent role, plays such a prominent role in our business environment today. I just, I'm thrilled to have you on here and, and really appreciate your insight. Thanks, O'Brien. It's been a pleasure. And like I said, I think uh, the world, we, we, we collectively as humans uh, have a big, huge playground today because of the virtual platforms that uh, for uh, companies like LinkedIn have been able to build. And we just hope that we continue to use it the best way possible. Amen. Well, I appreciate your time. Thanks, Brian. Cheers. Hey, folks, one last thing before you go. If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.